0: college students' makeshift recording studio, this is Mindum, the podcast where we make sense of my mind's nonsense. I'm your host, Bea, and in this episode, we're talking about problematic artists. I'm gonna be honest, it's never been that difficult for me to cancel artists when news breaks of their abuse, sexual harassment, misogyny, homophobia, and the like. I mean, I've stopped listening to Chris Brown and R. Kelly, even though I used to jam to Ignition Remix shamelessly. And I've even decided not to try watching Roman Polanski films altogether. There are two extreme ends in dealing with this dissonance. You either separate art from the artist, or you just don't support that artist at all. As you can see, I've taken the latter route. But... This all changed when I found out that J.K. Rowling was transphobic in a series of tweets last June 7. The woman who is likely the world's best known children's author is defending herself against growing accusations of transphobia. This is J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, of course, who sparked outrage last weekend with a series of controversial tweets about trans women. (laughs) I couldn't wrap my head around it. So you're telling me that J.K. Rowling the JK Rowling is bigoted? What? Is this is this the same JK Rowling who created this intricate world of monsters and muggles and magical witches and wizards? Is this the same JK Rowling who taught me that there's good in everyone? Who 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 gave me an escape from my childhood bullies? It it drove me crazy, you could just imagine my devastation. And this was not the first time that she was upfront about her stance against trans people. My heart literally felt like it was ripped out of my chest when I saw the tweets. And not even exaggerating, it just physically hurt. I mean, I grew up reading Harry Potter. A lot of my peers did. I even thought I was some gifted child just because I started and finished the first book in second grade. The Harry Potter series brought so much joy, magic, and light in my life. At the moment I saw her tweets, I felt that light snuffed out. (laughs) I was going crazy. For the first time, I actually had to confront this cognitive dissonance. What do you do when an artist whose works you absolutely love outrightly marginalizes and invalidates the existence of actual human beings? It's quite a lot to unpack. Well, one very valid and strong argument is that history has proven, time and time again, that you truly cannot separate art from the artist. No matter what you do, the artist's persona and identity will always influence the way they create. Bits and pieces of their toxic beliefs and behaviors will inevitably rise to the surface. Take director Woody Allen, for instance. He's been accused several times, and by his own freaking daughter, of sexual harassment. Of all his films, I've only watched Annie Hall. But there's a common pattern in Allen's films, which is that he stars in most of them as the main protagonist, and Annie Hall was no exception. His love interest was way younger than him, and the character Woody Allen portrayed was brimming with neuroticism and sexual dysfunction. There's no doubt how much Woody Allen's criminal tendencies shine through in the protagonists he himself plays. In 1942, I had already discovered women. I know, I know, it's it's really disgusting, and the same goes for R. Kelly and Chris Brown, whose songs are filled with inappropriate and abusive sexual innuendos. And whether you like it or not, the same goes for J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter. There was actually a Tumblr post by Akio Shitpost circulating on Twitter, and it basically enumerated the many instances that Rowling's bigoted views were embedded in the magical world she built. I'll just give three examples here, but there are a lot. The first one is a personal observation, and it's the use of diversity tokens. I love the unique names in Harry Potter. There was Severus Snape, Remus Lupin, Nymphadora Tonks. Each character was brimming with life. Then, bloop, an Asian character comes along. And what's her name? What's her name? Cho Chang. Cho Chang. Not to mention that Cho and Chang are both surnames. She might as well have been named Karen or Linda. It it was just such a distasteful and tone-deaf choice. I apologize to any Karen out there and any Carol, okay? Y'all get it too sometimes. I don't say that. I keep Karens to myself. The second example is from the said Tumblr post. Let's talk about the character of Rita Skeeter. Again, I will reiterate that J.K. Rowling has claimed to be a proud transphobe. So just think about it. Think about why she would give Rita features like a large square jaw, thick manly hands, and describe her as a character who dresses garishly with fake nails, fake teeth, fake hair, fake everything. J.K. Rowling once described trans women as, quote, foxes pretending to be hens to get in the hen house, end quote. So just think about why J.K. Rowling would then make Rita Skeeter illegally transform her body to spy on children. Whew, that was quite a revelation when I read it as well. The third and last example is how Rowling's bigotry is manifested in house elves. House elves are essentially slaves who love working for no pay and love cleaning up after wizards. And Dobby, who's considered the most radical of them all, wanted to be free from that. Yet, he ended up still working for no pay while helping a white boy named Harry Potter, and he ended up risking his life in the process. Only Hermione thought house elves should be completely free, with no strings attached. Yet, Hermione was treated like a joke for her ideals. It is evident that Harry Potter is an inherently bigoted text. Yes, we can condemn J.K. Rowling all we want and insist that that's enough. That we can enjoy Harry Potter without guilt. But what do you do when the text itself is marred with transphobia and racism? One argument is that we should treat artists like they are dead. Artists just created a text, but they don't own it. It's still the audience who have full power over the works they consume. I mean, we aren't dumb and succumbing content consumers after all. The fact that we were even able to notice Harry Potter's transphobic and racist tendencies is a testament to that. Ronald Barths, a social and literary critic and essayist who I deeply admire, actually advocated the idea that we must learn to consume content without the author in mind. Again, without the author in mind. The artist is not God. We mustn't give them the power over how we interpret their work. In his essay, From Work to Text, Barth says, quote, If he is a novelist, he is inscribed in the novel like one of his characters, figured in the carpet, but no longer privileged, paternal, aletheological. His inscription is ludic. He becomes, as it were, a paper author. His life is no longer the origin of his fictions, but a fiction contributing to his work. There is a reversion of the work onto the life. End quote. In a nutshell, just to simplify, <laughs> what Barthes is saying is actually incredibly empowering. The artist is not a privileged god. Their character does not dictate the way we understand their texts. When we read or watch or listen to different works of art, it's not a passive act. We end up rewriting them. And in turn, these works become marred with our own biases. We can't separate the art from the artists and take the art into our own hands. However, however, it goes to say that this mindset could apply in an ideal world, in a perfect world, in a world where media consumption doesn't matter in the material and economic sense. This is especially relevant in the music industry. I mean, what do you do? When the artist you love is a sexual abuser, but because people still listen to him and insist that he's separate from his music, he is able to use his fame and success to get away with various lawsuits. Did I just describe R. Kelly? Yes, I did. Taking you to another developing story we're tracking American singer R. Kelly has been indicted on 10 counts of aggravated sexual abuse. R. Kelly is so successful and wealthy that he's been protected from the consequences for his long history of sexual predation. In 1998, Kelly was getting backlash as he was accused of having a sexual relationship with underage R&B singer Aliyah. And amidst all that, it was also around this time that Kelly settled yet another allegation of rape for only $250,000. In 2001, he was accused yet again and settled yet again for similar charges. His home in Florida has also been raided by the police only to find it full of photographic evidence of his sexual relations with teenage girls. Despite how problematic and abusive he obviously is, he managed to release five platinum-selling albums and 26 top 40 singles. This just goes to show that when we continue to support our favorite artists despite their criminal behaviors, we're essentially letting them off the hook. We're condoning their acts and allowing them to walk away from all of it scotch-free, and swimming in copious amounts of money. Separating art from artists becomes impossible in a capitalist society. Okay, I know what you're gonna say. Dude, I know some artists are evil, but how could you shame me for enjoying their works? I wouldn't be where I am today without Harry Potter. You can't just take that away from me. And I get it, I get it. It sucks how the media we consume is directly correlated to other artists' economic success. But we can't fully blame ourselves for enjoying these works when capitalism is the primary and very flawed system we're running on. I mean, Daniel Radcliffe said it himself when he released a statement, and he honestly couldn't have expressed it better. He said, quote, If these books taught you that love is the strongest force in the universe, capable of overcoming anything, if they taught you that strength is found in diversity, and that dogmatic ideas of pureness lead to oppression of vulnerable groups— if you believe that a character is trans, non-binary, or gender-fluid, or that they are gay or bisexual, if you found anything in these stories that resonated with you and helped you at any time, then that is between you and the book that you read, and it is sacred. Wonderful points. Can you please make a petition for Daniel Radcliffe to replace J.K. Rowling? <laughs> but, you know, in all seriousness, now that we know all these different arguments on how we should approach this issue, what now? I don't want you guys listening to this podcast only to be more confused. But honestly, there really isn't a single approach to this. I can't dictate a one-size-fits-all method. What I can offer are different options on how we can move forward with our knowledge of the many implications of supporting or not supporting the work of problematic artists. An article from Vox on the same topic says that we can choose to engage critically with a text without endorsing that artist's moral stance. I mean, if we love something, it isn't exactly a rational choice. Claire Hayes Brady, a lecturer in American literature at University College Dublin, says, quote, At the end of the day, a work of art that speaks to you is a work of art that speaks to you. It's not a rational decision what we love. It's not possible to have loved the text and then retrospectively to unlove it. End quote. Well, that makes sense. That must be why my friends can't stop returning to their toxic excess. Okay, anyway, (laughs) in all seriousness, this does go hand-in-hand with making sure that we don't just ask whether the artists themselves are awful. We can also ask whether their works have undoubtedly endorsed discriminatory and prejudiced stances. Another approach is called non-reading. Amy Hungerford released an article on The Chronicle entitled on refusing to read. Here she illustrated how she decided not to let her students read any works by David Foster Wallace, who is known as a pretty, actually very misogynistic writer. She says, and I quote, Why should we turn the podium over to this author among so many others to invite him to stand at the microphone of literary culture for a thousand pages and more if it's not pretty clear to a moderately well informed person that his work is worth our attention? In the article, Hungerford explains how much power we have as readers and audiences, that we can adamantly refuse to consume certain texts. There's a sense of empowerment in refusal, and it's not something to be ashamed of. Before choosing to read or watch something, we must contemplate on whether it is worth our time, or whether it simply enforces dated and hegemonic values. Lastly, and my favorite approach, is seeking for counter-canons in everything we consume. A bunch of dead white men have long dictated the standards of canonical literature, of praiseworthy films, of good music. We certainly can appreciate classic works of art, but for me, that also entails having to actively search for their counterparts. This doesn't necessarily mean a revolutionary or completely opposite reading but simply a work of art that dispels the notions that these quote-unquote classic works have imposed on us. Art is beautiful because of the very fact that we can question its boundaries and beliefs through other works of art. Art changes because of the readers who write it, and because of the artists who create new narratives that directly counter past narratives that no longer serve us. Here are some examples of counter-canons that you can explore. If you've read The Odyssey, which is a Greek classic, you must read Penelope by Margaret Atwood, which is basically narrated by Odysseus' wife, Penelope. If you've read Harry Potter, I find that Heroes of Olympus by Rick Jordan tastefully sheds light on diverse characters. If you've watched Call Me By Your Name, Moonlight is a great queer film that actually highlights Black communities. Meanwhile, there's Blue is the Warmest Color, which is a very distastefully done lesbian film because it was very much influenced by the male gaze. A better option is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a much more stunning and rich lesbian film with a female and queer director. Admittedly, I'm still so devastated at the thought that my childhood hero is utterly bigoted. But that doesn't change the impact that her books have brought into my life. It's impossible to separate art from the artist but we can always project our own ideals and beliefs into what we consume. If you think about it, J.K. Rowling only created Harry Potter, but it is through the readers that Harry Potter has evolved over the years and has truly become immortal. From fan fiction to fan art, we've taken these books and characters into our own hands. At the end of it all, we must remain critical. You can choose to keep loving the art. You can refuse to consume it at all or you can seek works that directly oppose this hegemony. What matters most is that you don't marginalize people in the process, and that you remain empowered and truthful to what you value. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Dale and this has been the pilot episode of Mind Dump.